city is always referred to in the feminine gender because a city is like a woman. She may appear exactly like another from the air or from the railroad platform, but she is elusive, full of surprises, difficult to possess and impossible to know. It's an awfully nice city to live in. Oh, you're going to take my voice now. Well, yes, it is, and I'm living it all my life. You might say my age, and I'm maybe six now, and the life in this city. I loved it always, and I took no notice of politics. I was just Irish and born in my own city and born of Irish parents. And I know no more. Beautiful city, charming and pretty. Beautiful city, my home, my Sweet Cork of the beautiful city, charming and pretty, Rebel Cork. The second city of Ireland, where Murphys and O'Connors and McCarthys live in the halls of Montanotti and the hovels of Blackpool and the concrete acres of Douglas and Bishopstown. Proud Cork, merchant princes and mendicants, friars and fly-by-nights. Ancient Cork, sitting on its hills like some Italian rampart, washed by light, that changes from amber to aquamarine with the speed of a smile. I always think of the lines of Spencer, do you remember? The lee which, like uh, uh, something fair, surrounds Cork with its encircling arms. And uh, for me, the river is Cork. People say the Cork has a peculiar lighting to it. Some people call that a, a miasma, but I love it. The moving, changing lights and clouds and cork are exquisite, I think. And when, when the evening sun sinking to rest Shed its golden light over the sea The maid with her lover The wild daisies pressed On the banks of Late on a summer evening, the houses are parting with heat and the streets are warm as a bedroom full of sleeping children. The wheels of a car, a dull, even sound, as if it drove on a carpet among the cracked pavements and the painted window sills on which lamplit people are sitting and talking. Cork is unique in many ways. That is, it's not a formally planned city. It doesn't have great squares, great streets, great avenues or vistas. But it does have a peculiar and particular character of its own due to its topographies and to the fact that the central island is surrounded by hills on both sides. From about the 15th, 16th century onwards, once the central island was settled, the river was divided into a number of channels which were used for navigation. And these, over time, were filled in, which, if you like, in picturesque terms, might have been a pity, otherwise we might rival Venice in our whole character had these channels not been built over. But it gradually spread out from the central island and up the hills on each side, developing in a very organic way, and that is not a predetermined town planning concept. St Finbar wore a glove on his right hand to hide the light that shone from it ever since the day he met Christ on the road to Cork. 
the good saint, thus encouraged, settled his monks by the banks of the River Lee thirteen hundred years ago, and then, in from the fjords of the north, to disturb the cloistered learning, came the men in the long ships up the Lee on errands of plunder. Old Cork, chartered as a city in 1174, recognised as a port to Europe by 1300, sending wool and deerskins down the Lee, and taking silk and wine back by return. Cromwell prowled through Cork. The Duke of Marlborough pounded at its door. James II prayed on one of its altars. Cork is many worlds, County Cork and Cork City. Even Cork City is a very complex place. The city was made up of a merchant class, both of English origin and of Irish origin, and it was made up around the outsides of the city, south side and north side in the lanes, of Gaelic stock who'd moved into the attraction of the town. And yet city, East Cork, West Cork, they all share something, a sort of spirit and self-confidence which, without wanting to offend my fellow countrymen, is not very common in this country. There's an air of gentility in Cork. The public buildings have Gothic ambitions... The private houses creak with their chosen burden of respectability. Apart from our beds, the only furniture we had was what went into the kitchen. Over the mantelpiece hung a long mirror, and to the right of it, the lamp. Facing the window was the little sideboard with one of our two clocks, and between that and the door was the bedroom wardrobe, which was too big to go up the stairs. Outside the window, it is Sunday. But the neighbour's washing hangs on the line, and between the stiff squares of white cloth, just visible, a glass window. Blackness beyond, half veiled by a net curtain, a lined curtain, a lampshade, the wooden back of a looking glass, then blackness. We could be in any city. No, we couldn't. What other city clings so fast to its memories? The roads were unmade. The roads were flint roads with inches of muck in the winter and dry as dust in the summertime and horses and drays rolling along, irrespective of what side of the road they moved on. Very few motor cars, very few lights except gas lamps. And one has always got an impression of the lamplighters coming around as dusk fell with long, long poles and lights on the top of them and tipping open the top of the gas lamp and putting their light into the lamp and bringing light into the city. Cork was full of soldiers then, the shining boots, the marching regiments, the brass bands across the cobble lanes, to the boats taking them away to the green fields of France, and eventually to the white crosses standing small and mute across Europe. The garrison of Cork was often frightened. There was hill country nearby, and who knew where a rebel might come from in later times with a Sam Brown belt and a long gun to add to the flames that still burn in people's hearts. Certainly Cork City and County comprised the principal theatre of war in the guerrilla warfare of 1920-21. Whilst we honour in song and in story names of Pierce and McBride, whose names are illumined in glory, 
martyrs who long since have died. Forget not the boys of Kilmichael, those gallant lads stalwart and true, who fought neath the green flag of Erin and conquered the red, white and blue. Mercifully, there are no guns in this part of Ireland now. The ballot box rules. It was, however, always a special kind of place in politics, even in the heyday of Parnell's supremacy in the Parliamentary Party. There were always splinter groups in Cork, and there was a well-known political maverick, Willem O'Brien, who dominated Cork politics in the first decade of the century and was alone to himself. And I think that general preoccupation with politics in Cork City, an intense preoccupation with politics, itself set the scene for Cork's activity in the Anglo-Irish War of 2021. In more recent politics, the biggest single vote in Ireland was given to a son of the city. I was regarded as a pure Corkman. My father was from West Cork, my mother from East Cork. I was more or less the twain that met. And I was born and reared in the city, in an old part of the city, under the shadow of Shandon. I played a lot of games, went to Cork schools, and I was hardly ever out of Cork except coming to Dublin for studies before I went into politics. So perhaps being a Corkman through and through, the Cork people probably thought that, and rightly so, I had a special affinity with them. Taoiseach is the Gaelic word for chieftain, and even though he has relinquished the leadership, Cork people still describe Jack Lynch as the real Taoiseach. When I went forward first, the majority of Cork people were not in favour at all of our party of Fianna Foyle. I perhaps can claim I contributed to the building up of a majority support in Cork. But perhaps they saw in me a person that seemed to be doing something for Cork because when I was Minister for Industry and Commerce and Minister for Finance, not because I was in these ministries, but in that period, Cork industry advanced and I think the well-being of the city advanced. As you know, the greatest characteristic of a true Corkonian is his modesty, number one. <laughs> well, after that is his, uh, his love of his native city, which is always shown in the form of uh, song in his appreciation. For instance, uh, it's a kind of nostalgia that breaks out. It's all homesickness that afflicts the Cork character because Cork people can become homesick even when they're at home. And... <laughs> It breaks out in the form of song, and the song is always the same song. On the banks of my one lovely day. And I would like you to meet a man thus smitten with this homesickness, this nostalgia, at about half past four in the afternoon, you know, at a wedding. And then his aunt appears on the scene, a rather educated lady, very musically inclined, a member of the Operatic Society, and all that, you know. Come here, where's Maya? Where's that man gone to? Come here, where are you? Listen, I've been looking for you everywhere. I thought you were going to sing. Why, who's going to stop me? <laughs> of course I want to sing. Let's see, no, let's, I'll sing, uh, I'll sing the banks. Oh, for heaven's sake, Maya, with a pin or ass, just the bloody banks. <laughs> there are people here with a modicum of musical education. They want something a little more edifying than that old ballad. Now, what's wrong with the banks? What's wrong? Oh, I see. Oh, you're meant to be a snob. Is that a, a snob in your old All right, look here. I'll sing something now that'll go down very well with your, with your classically minded friends. I'll sing The Holy City. All right? The Holy City. <clears throat> Last night as I lay dreaming
dreaming, dear him, a dream so fair. I stood in old Jerusalem beside the temple there. I have the children singing. Listen, wait a minute. Don't take it easy. I made a mistake. I made... I forgot. Even Jack forgets, you know. <laughs> There's a story told of the typical Cork woman who was anxious that people should know who she was and, more important, what she was. She went on a day excursion to Yall, Cork's Lido, and was soon to be heard dancing up and down on the beach in some agitation, crying, Help! Help! Will somebody please save my son, the engineer? He's drowning! Of course, engineers are important in this bustling city, which was assembled from the nuts and bolts of the countryside. Well, the main business is agriculture, I suppose, basically. Then you know that you have the continuing industrial development of Cork, which was started by Fords, and you have big developments in the lower harbour, and you have quite substantial developments in your own Cork. It has natural assets, for example, the harbour itself. The location of Cork to the growing agricultural industry that we have, which has developed tremendously since the common market. Strange shapes are occupying the skyline of Cork now. Offshore, oil may occur. Onshore, chemical plants and refineries frown at the people. Well, basically the main problem is that we haven't got down to writing the legislation to control the environment. We have no alkali inspector, we have no method of somebody be able to put up his hand and stop dangerous chemicals being brought through the streets, to stop dangerous chemicals such as ammonia being put through the Glenmire Tunnel. We must be in a position to shout stop. Where there's muck, there's money, and the Corkmen are the Yorkshiremen of Ireland. Elitist, shrewd, and proud of it. In Dublin, they say a Corkman with an inferiority complex is one who thinks he's just as good as anybody else. But they're just jealous of the Corkman's way with money. Paying on the nail, of course, is a Cork expression, uh, because it comes from the old Cork exchange. They had a, an iron pillar there, and the sea transactions used to be finished there. And, and then we have the gutty boys, a fellow who is, is a bit of a hooligan here in Cork, is known as a gutty boy. This comes from the old skinning trade here, where they got the sheep up on the south side of the city, and they were pretty rough fellows. Anybody in that was known as a gutty boy. The broader expressions, though, happen in Cork's Grub Street, the pages of The Examiner, and The Echo. Teacher is Summer shows underway. Cork detective, congratulations. The super sale starts today. McGuire is invited to dine with the Society at University College. Great thanks to St. Pascal for numerous favours signed unworthy. The Echo Boys scurry about the thoroughfare poking their headlines, nipping in and out of the traffic, like beetles on a pond. Tell me, have the four of you now got your own separate stands, different stands for selling echoes, have you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the best stand of all? Donald Ford's. Why Donald Ford's, Robert? I have best four. Yeah. About 130 people come out and the 
And every one of them buys paper off you. My word, that's good going. Any other place as good as Ford's? Skyscraper. Why the skyscraper? Because it's a big building and uh, there'll be a load of people coming out of the offices. Yeah. And they buy papers off you. What age were you when you started selling Echoes in the beginning? Eight years of age. And you, Robot? Five. You didn't. I did. Are you sure? Positive. But at five, I bet you you made an odd mistake. Did you win the change? I did. Are cock people generous? Yeah. What was the most generous person you ever met? The most generous fellow was from London. And he gave me um, £10. Are you sure it was £10 he gave you? Positive. Are you? Yeah. Sure. Echo! Echo evening, Echo! Six o'clock, Echo! The examiner and the echo are the voice of Cork. And sometime between the lines, you can hear the curious cadences of the Cork accent. In fact, there are four or five different Cork accents, you know. I suppose you'd say that we got it from St Finbar, if you were very religious. He came down to Cork a thousand and a half years ago, and uh, he came from the west of Ireland, you see, so you might say there's a little bit of connect in it now. Then, some hundred years or so, more than that after him, the Danes came pooping up the river raiding, and they added their touch. That's the Scandinavian bit, because, of course, they occupied the centre of Cork for four or five hundred years. They built a city, you see. But shortly after then, we had the Welsh Normans on our doorstep, so they added a bit of the yakida, you see, the up-and-down thing, you know. Then, of course, naturally, the English came over in the close season, knocking each other round a bit and knocking us as well, you know. So probably the Montanotti part comes from them. And uh, then, when that all had been settled in, the Huguenots arrived, the French Huguenot refugees, and they settled on a part of the city called the Marsh, which is really the centre of the old city, and the harsh, shrill point of the accent comes from them. Johnny, come in, lay bitch, You know that bit? That's a Johnny, come in and have your ears boxed. That's an invitation. And then, of course, on the other side of the scale, there's the fruity tones of Montanotti. You know, uh, you'll hear that rolling in mellifluous tones on the, the 19th green within the conclaves of the Royal Cork Yacht Club, the oldest yacht club in the world, boy. Well, that is, in its strictest form, that's rather like like somebody trying to give a confidence and eating a warm potato at the same time. And then, of course, there's the middle-of-the-road accent. Uh, are you going down to Crossing for the summer? We are. We have a bungalow took, you know. Or later on, of course, we'll go to Majorca. <laughs> and then the real Cork accent, of course, probably comes from the north side of the city, Blackpool. And this is spoken with irony, and out of the corner of the mouth. Uh, irony, no, that means uh, seeing one thing and meaning another. Like, uh, how's your old one, game ball? Uh, that really means I hear your mother is drunk again, you know. How's your old one, game ball? Out in the backyard, blind drunk. Hi, tiddly, hi, tie, tie, tie. Three more pints for the road, Mike. Just go on over that if there's no homes to go to. Yeah, no home was never like this. Blackpool girls are very rude. They go swimming in the nude. Here's up a mall, says the boys of Fair Hill. Blarney hens don't lay at all, and when they lays, they lays them small. Here's up a mall, says the boys of Fair Hill. The pubs of Cork have wit rather than humour. With the acid pride of all second cities, there's an elitism. 
the corkman regards himself as just a bit more sophisticated than a carryman, and the definition of uh, a carryman with a cork accent is a social climber, somebody who actually moves up along the social scale and gets as far as cork. And the traditional definition of a thrill seeker is a carryman arriving up in Cork City with a wheelbarrow. I mean, <laughs> this is the degree of sophistication that's involved. I would say also that there is a tremendous pride in Cork City in its environs. You notice when you come to live in Cork that you're trying to penetrate this all the time, although it doesn't seem real in the beginning. And you've got to be several generations there before you accept it. I think there's still a lot of the, the practical joke or the send-up or the take-off or the very rural, very seemingly unsophisticated humour. That goes down very well in Cork City. Having somebody on or being one-up on somebody or something like that, both verbally and in action, is the thing they're going for mostly. But I remember one asking what a corkman who's a sanitary expert is, and the answer is a connoisseur. A corkman has just invented a new labour-saving mousetrap. It comes complete with its own mice. I mean, I think that's the type of thing that they might go in for, where there's a certain amount of sophistication but a certain amount of rural cunning at the background as well. To be in Cork, you see, you're away from all this phony tinsel of Dublin. You're actually a countryman in Cork. You're terribly in touch with the Irish people. You're in touch with them in every way. When I lived in Dublin for three or four years then, I lost complete touch with everybody. You're in a kind of a semi-literary cultural egoism up in Dublin there, and you're sitting around in little pubs and you're sipping and you're talking about the next greatest book that so-and-so is going to write. And as a fellow described it to me, he says, they do nothing but masturbate their egos. of the institutional church has always raised itself on tiptoes above the body of Cork with a rosary of churches and a mission in Peru, the city that prays together stays together. And the bells of Cork, famous in their towers, the symbols glorious, reigning uproarious of the beautiful city. On each face of the tower, there's a large clock face. In time of these, Shandon's bells rang our lives away, quarter by quarter, all through the day and night. The tunes had to be simple since the chimes were limited to a single octave of eight naturals, so that whenever there should be a sharp, the poor man had to use a natural. And if he ever wanted to go above his range, he just banged his top note and hoped for the best. Cork, you're summoned by bells, from Shandon to St Finbar's. St Finbar is to Cork what St Peter is to Rome. St Finbar is, like St George, largely the products of propaganda by various ecclesiastical interests. We know nothing at all that is reliable about St Finbar, beyond the fact 
that it is popularly claimed that he was the founder of the city of Cork, but that in the ninth century the monks of Cork and their superiors believed the monastery had been founded by Saint Finbar, and indeed Professor O'Rean, my colleague, has uh, claimed that Saint Finbar indeed has no existence at all. Poor Saint Finbar, officially respected, but with no guarantees of a pension. Saint or not, a guarantee of any kind can be hard to come by in Cork. If you searched, looked, wandered in the right places, you would find a deeply inset social problem, which is over 100 years old. And I would define that problem as, generally speaking, economic. Indirectly speaking, educational. Are they both tied in anyway? The vast majority of the people are working class. The average wage of that class would be £60 take-home a week. And they would represent well over 80% of the population of Cork. If you go into the centre of the town and move around the hotels and the pubs, you would get an impression of absolute affluence and free spending and the good life generally. If you were to travel north of the city into Blarney Street, into Shandon Street, into Blackpool, looked at the kind of fare in the shops, you would find a vast difference between that and the centre of town. And this emanates out of a repressed working class who know there's a rip-off going on somewhere because car people are not blind and they see the size of the yachts in Kinsale, they see the size of the yachts in Crosshaven, they're there. They can watch the high spending in the big shops in town and they know there must be a rip-off. Once a year, there's a calm, peaceful and quite deliberate rip-off done with vigour and determination. Students from the schools wanted their old people to have houses and they set out to get them in an extraordinarily powerful social effort. Basically, what it involves is Christmas of every year, there's a fast held downtown in Cork. It's a, a crib with a star over it in the centre of the main street and they fast on a rota basis and collect money. That's basically how the money is raised and then the money is used to build houses for old, needy people. Catty Berry sells crew beans, fairly Boston at the seams. Here's up a mall, says the boys of Fairhill. Catty Berry is a legend in her own lifetime. Catty Barry would be a woman now of 72 or 73. From about the 40s, when I got to know her, up to the middle 50s, she was running what is known as a crewbean shop off the Colque in Carmack Street. This was euphemistically known as a crewbean shop because the main business was done at night in this fabulous kitchen with this fabulous fire, with this fabulous pot which had all these crewbeans cooking in them. Crewbeans are pig's feet pig's trotters and they need to be cooked over a long period of time to soften out to become edible and this woman sat there mainly silent with those high cheekbones very very narrow under the cheekbones shadows under the cheekbones those deep 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 set eyes and that amazing head it's a roman head she's a fantastic nose and a great grace in her and the restless the unhappy the malcontents, the dissidents, congregated there after the pubs closed and they could continue their drinking and their talking. And she sold a thing called uh, jungle juice, which was a mixture of cider and plunk. Once you drank it, you became what you always wanted to be in your own particular sphere. If you wanted to be a great poet, you became a great poet. There and then, first up, a politician became a great politician. A tenor in opera, you became that too. So you can imagine a room with about 15 dissidents 
who were all failed something or other, becoming successes for that period of time once that juice hit the liver. There's a story told about the man who walked into Catty Barry's and asked, Have you crew beans, Catty? And she said, I have, Johnny. Catty, he said, Do you find it very hard to walk on them? A crew bean, the noble foot of the pig, is an elevating gastronomic experience. It requires to be grappled with, gnawed at, anticipated more than realised, unlike that other cork dish, Drisheen. We sell it by the hank, sir. We sell it by the foot. We sell it by the furlong and the metre. Tis the grand old cork drasheen, sir, and sure it'll do you good, for no dish is half as tasty, sir, nor sweeter. And that's drasheen, then. That comes from the sheep. That's the blood of the sheep. Mixed with milk and salt, flavours. You can boil that in water for five minutes, put it on the plate, and then take it up and cut it in small strips. Like that now, like dinner. And then take a whole spoonful of water off of the pot and put it on the plate and then a couple of knifefuls of butter and between the water and, and the butter it makes lovely gravy and a bit of pepper and salt. It's very nice. Did you ever eat it? Did you ever eat drisheen? Did I ever eat drisheen? There's eating and drinking in it. But there's also crew beans and there's bacon and there's steak and there's potatoes. Not necessarily all together. And there are Carberry Tails, the superman of the prawn family. And even the odd bivalve gets through. The local story about oysters is the man who was told that oysters would do great things all together for him. And he had a dozen oysters and his friend who had recommended them to him came along the next day and said, Well, Johnny, did the oysters work? And he looked a little bit mournful and said, Well, one of them must have been bad. Maybe the lady in his life didn't mind. Maybe she was like the waitress in the hotel there, who was finally called by an impatient diner. Miss, you never gave me any sugar, he wailed. You're better off without it, she replied cheerfully enough. Cork women are to be seen, ginting and gleaming along Patrick Street of an afternoon, glistening with elegance, a gloss on them shaped into the hourglass of fashion, wanting nothing from the couture of the moment, elegant in themselves. They're very beautiful women. They are less sophisticated than the Dublin women. But they have this much. They have a shrewder crowd. I mean, there's no use you going up to a cock woman and telling her that your wife misunderstands you and that you love her and that you leave her and that she's going to swoon at that. She's not going to swoon, she's going to tell you she's off. Now, in Dublin, of course, you can get away with this. Your wife can misunderstand you perfectly in Dublin and you'll get a sympathetic ear. You won't get it down here. Today is the feast day of St. Anne. Pray for me. I am the mad woman of Cork. Yesterday in Castle Street... I saw two goblins at my feet. I saw a horse without a head carrying the dead to the graveyard near Turner's Cross. I'm the mad woman of Cork. No one talks to me. When I walk in the rain, the children throw stones at me. This city is rich in words. There's always the trace of the storyteller, the image of the writer, sitting quietly in a corner of somebody's kitchen, taking it all down. Cork really only came into the scene of writing in English in the 20th century and specifically in the time of the War of Independence, the Civil War. Young men at that time had been fired by great idealism. But after the War of Independence, the Civil War, there was this new sort of writing in Ireland, a new realism, and the writers turned to prose. Now, it was at this time that you got O'Fellon and O'Connor and, of course, their father and mentor in literary terms was Daniel Corkery, who was another Corkman. 
And there is this fascination with story, with what we call in Gaelic Shkeliacht, with tell us a story, tell us the news, with character and flavour and what happens to people. And this is a very old oral tradition, and you can tell this from the Cork Short Story Writers, because all of their stories are so much better if you read them aloud. Every Sunday morning or Saturday night, I would see at this arched door the departure, and every Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, the arrival of forests, waterfalls, mountains, grey castles... I think there's more culture in Cork than you could possibly realise. For example, this is a very unusual thing. Now, if you have an opera in the opera house here in Cork, so there are great music in it. And you know what you'll find? You'll find for a month after that the messenger boys going round on their bicycle whistling the tunes. Now, I don't think you'll find that anywhere else. Well, of course, I could tell you about the opera company that came as the opera, and they were doing Trovatore one night, and the tenor had obviously been very well entertained by Cork people before he got in. He was most exuberant in the first act, and as you know, Trovatore is a very robust opera. He nearly took the head off the baritone in the trio at the end of the act. And then he opens the second act lying in his mother's lap, as a chain his lap, and the gypsies are singing their song, and then when he had to get up, it was rather difficult to rouse him to sing his song. And um, in the interval between the second and third acts, the four acts in Tovatori, the touring manager came out and he said that he was he regretted that he had to announce that Mr So-and-so would not be able to appear in the third act as he had had a sudden attack of malaria. And there was a voice in Gosby Jesus, I wouldn't mind a bottle of that myself. <laughs> For a small city, I suppose, we have a considerable amount of activity. We have an orchestra society which runs five or six major orchestra concerts during the season and about a dozen or more recitals. The School of Music is very active and has at least one concert in the week, sometimes two. We have a big music department in the university with over 100. Well, we have nearly 100 undergraduates and about a dozen postgraduates. It's an amateur orchestra, but we function for the two ballet companies. We do a symphony concert or two, and we perform in the college. We have done, actually, for our ballet performances, we've done Petrushka, we've done Prokofiev, Cinderella. Being cold to the bar in Cork doesn't just mean taking silk or stout. It also means being trained and enshrined in the Irish Ballet Company, founded in Cork by Joan Denise Mariarty. You know, Irish people are extraordinary in the way that they are very musical. They're very dramatic people, of course, and they love theatre. And they, I think, saw something in the dance that attracted them, made them use their imagination. And I think that that is one of the reasons why it has now become something that uh, they all accept. And many people in Cork say that they're very proud of the ballet tradition here. (laughs) ¶¶ 
all over the world they dance now, those slim young girls bringing Nutcracker to the nations and jousting along Broadway with the playboy of the Western world. A cultural export to replace the wool and deer skins. A cultural import comes in celluloid. Pay attention, everybody, please. I've got something to say to you. You've all been told what to do in a state of emergency. Well, this is it. Please be quiet. The Japanese are at Tanjong Malin, 50 miles from here. The special trains have been arranged for evacuees, so get out quick. That's all. Goodbye. It came about in 1956 and was the brainchild, of course, of the late Dermot Breen. The Cork Film Festival has friends everywhere. It's a long-standing date for the movies. One of the oldest in the world, boy. It was devised, I suppose, initially with tourism and putting Cork on the map in mind, and nowadays I think it has established itself, and certainly I'm told that as far as the film industry is concerned, it's regarded as very important in terms of promotion of film. We've always concentrated on short film, and I think that this has worked for us and has carved our particular niche in the large number of film festivals that exist around the world. The meeting point for the people nearer home is neither the cinema nor the concert platform. There may be international streams coursing through the city, but the hinterland needs the place more as a place of celebration for the countryman and his sports. The Cork Summer Show is, of course, the second biggest show in Ireland, second only to the RDS, and it's certainly Munster's number one agricultural show. Cork City people throng here. They want to see the latest in the agricultural machinery field. And, and, of course, Paul Dara and James Kernan, international riders who are well-known through television, they want to see those competing. Over the third part, now towards the wall, really flying on towards that wall. He's up, he's over it, he's clear. The Corkman likes every kind of sport, in my opinion. You know, you'll find fellas following Gaelic football, hurling, rugby, ball-playing drag hunting. It's a colossal interest, really. Cork followers looking for that touch of magic from the maestro Christy Ring, who's gone in full forward now. Hurling in a bit to the centre, cleared out now by Phil Brown to the far side. Gallagher's got it, sends it across into the centre, Christy Ring fell, 21 yards out, he's shaking the shot, the shot's got it, it's a goal! It's a goal! Other heroes have graced the fields, the monster rugby team, trained and egged on in Cork, beat the apparently invincible All Blacks, Rach Carter and George Best, weaved patterns of soccer along the Mardike, Gaelic football reached new heights, even cricket and bowls survived genteelly in the welter of sporting society that is Cork. Where I sported and played Neath each green leafy shade On the banks of my own lovely lea Where I sported and played Neath each green leafy shade On the banks of my own lovely lea Sweet cork of thee, built on hills like a wayward roam shifting its gaze from cottage to church. Witty and kind, with a heart that's open but inquiring, singing the echoes of the past and the hymns of the present. Where the young care for the old, where pretense and poverty can be one and the same thing, and where the notes of a native son are counted at the ballot box. A vigorous town to work in, a busy town to live in, a calm town to rear your children in, a happy town to drink in, a friendly town to die in. The biggest village in Ireland and the proudest and the cutest and the clearest. Sweet cock of thee. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.